So how would you describe worship? What does that, what does that word mean? Like a gold idol somewhere and a bunch of people going, ah, no? I don't know. Sometimes that runs through my head and I think, gosh, that would be weird. Um, no, what, what does worship mean? Somebody, shout it out. Expression of love to God. What else? Prayer. Praise. Fellowship with the Lord. Did you read my notes? Tom, you're not supposed to give it away. I'm supposed to have the good point at the end after everyone else says all the things that are kind of sort of right, but not really. No, I'm kidding. What else? Tim? Mercies and grace. Yeah, okay. What? Moving the heart. Moving the heart of God, yes. Intimacy. Communion. Your heart, huh? You've been reading. Were you in the first service? Okay. Yes. Um, is it our singing? Well, yeah, it includes our singing. Yes, it, it is our singing. Is it our, our actions, the way we live out and sacrifice for the Lord um, and really um, and walk in the path even when it's difficult for us? Yes. Is it our attitudes that we have, our, our, our communing, our heart with the Lord? Is that, is that worship? Is it our lifestyle? Yes. I mean, we, use, we describe a lot of things under the kind of the idea of worship. It can mean a lot of things. And that's okay. It does. Because worship really is how we relate to God honestly. That's, it, it's honestly how we relate to him, um, or in an honest way. It's, it's our connection to God. And worship brings the spiritual truth of that, our relationship with the Father, our relationship with God, into the physical world that we see. When we, when we lift our hands to praise, when we lift our hands to worship, when we sing and declare the goodness of God when we praise his name, when we live out a lifestyle that is redemptive and, um, and walking in the victory that he has promised, when we do those things, when we walk in that way, all those things, it literally, it brings the truth of how things really are in the spirit and how we relate to God into the world so not only we can see, but other people can see, the world can see. Worship is how that manifests into the physical world. It manifests the kingdom that God brought to earth. It manifests it into the earth. And it's really easy for us to get so caught up in the physical world that we see that our faith or the concept of our worship, right, it becomes like an internal imagination that feels disconnected from our urgent and overloaded lives. Has anyone been there? Yeah, where songs become empty and prayers become just recitations and things, but that's not what it's supposed to be. It really is easy for us to be overwhelmed by the sin in the world around us, the sin that knocks even at our own door, 
the sin that hurts us. But I want to say sin is not so much a set of deeds, but the blindness that is lived out in the wake of not having relationship with our life source. It's the activities of a deadened relationship with the one who birthed us into life and creation. That's why worship is so important, because it resets, it retells, it recasts, it it looks like what our relationship with God really is. And the way we worship is the fruit of this renewing transformation that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies yourself, you present in the physical, in the natural world, your bodies, your, your, your faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or this is your rational act of worship. It, it, that is what it's supposed to look like. That's, it's rational that we would worship God in this way. And it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind or your spiritual understanding that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The way we worship is the fruit of this renewing transformation of our spiritual understanding. The way we worship is also the fruit of our freedom that we have in Christ. Our worship is beautifully expressed It is a beautifully expressed unity of spirit and in truth, spirit and truth. That's why Jesus said in John chapter four, he said, the hour is coming and it even is here. It's now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. Yes, we've worn that scripture out. I'm not going to preach on it. I'm just referencing it. For the father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's why church, when we assemble together, is about the word and worship, because the word gives us the platform of truth to stand on, and worship elevates us into the manifest presence of our heavenly Father, who is spirit, where we can give and receive the most perfect of all loves. Do you want that this morning? Will you stand on the platform of truth and lift your hands into the spirit? God does not need our worship. He needs nothing. But the heart of God, however, does yearn over you, yearns to commune with you, yearns for your willingness and your desire to commune with him. He yearns for the richness of salvation and the bounty of heaven to flow into your life and for you to learn that the secret of this flow, this flow from heaven into your life, this river is the continual flow of it beyond yourself. This is like a watershed point, the watershed point of God's river in your life is your worship. Now, I used a word there that probably is a little tricky, watershed point. I'm glad that you're, you asked that question. <laughs> this is a little hard to see, but this is a picture of the watershed point on the North American continent. What's highlighted is Pikes Peak. Now, what is a watershed point, you might say? Well, the watershed point is to the east, the east of that, that point, rivers 
flow all to the east towards the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. But to the west of that point on this continent, rivers all flow west to the Pacific Ocean. It is a watershed point where water either flows one way or it flows the other way. Well, in North America, that point is Pikes Peak. And the view, this is just one side. Looking out, you can literally see the fruited plains of Kansas and Nebraska in the Midwest. That's what you're looking out on. But if you turn around, you see the deserts of Utah and Arizona. But from that place, there are these binocular, like from that vantage point, you can see a long ways in both directions. Well, Every Sunday, we are really invited to this mountaintop. You say, well, what does watershed points have to do with worship? Well, I'm glad you asked that question too. Um, Uh-oh. Okay. So as I was praying about worship, this scripture that, where Jesus said, you know, I set before you life and death. Choose life. And we think about it oftentimes as like a crossroads or an intersection where we're going to walk on this path or we're going to walk on that path. But I heard the voice of the Lord say to me, he said, it's not so much about the path that you choose, but the direction you face. It's not so much about which job you're working in or which restaurant you eat or where, which state you live in. It's not so much about the path that you choose, but it's about the direction you face. And church is supposed to be a mountaintop. It's a watershed point in our lives as a people. Your worship at home, you are brought, sometimes because you choose, sometimes because life brings it to you, watershed points where you can see and you can stand and face the fruited plains of God's presence and his kingdom and his goodness. You can choose to face that way no matter how far off it seems. Or you can give in and face the desert. It's not so much about the path. It's about the direction that you choose to face. And that is the A, that is the heart of your worship and our worship together as a church. Will we choose to face the fruited plains? One of our models for worship in the Bible is King David. And I am sorry, this is just a a picture from the Bible series. I am not saying that this is King David or that he even looks like that, but that's the best picture I could find. He's a dude with a crown. What can I say? Okay. God describes David as a man after his own heart. Not perfect, by any stretch of the imagination, right? He screwed up royally (laughs) on many occasions, yes. But his pursuit was God's own heart. That's what God described over and over at these watershed points in his life. And he had many. I mean, he he was faced with so many opportunities to turn and just go into the desolation But so many opportunities at watershed points in his life, these mountaintop experiences where you can see far in either direction, 
He chose to turn his back on the desert and face the fruited plains of God's promise, no matter how far off they seemed. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three watershed points in David's life and how his pursuit of God's own heart illuminates our call to worship today. So God wanted to be God of the people of Israel with no intermediary, no judge, no king, no president, no nothing. He just wanted to be their God. You will be my people and I will be your God, right? Do you remember that? And the people clamored for a king. Israel clamored for a king so they could be like what? All the other nations of the world. Hello, why? Why do we want to be like every other place, every other nation? I don't know. It was, it, this is... It is in the human heart. So they, they clamored for a king. God gave them King Saul. Saul actually didn't start out as a bad guy. He started out as a good guy. He was anointed. He, had, he was gifted. He was transformed in the presence of God, and he led well. But he couldn't handle the power. He couldn't handle the place. He couldn't handle it. And he became jealous and prideful. And so he's kind of, he became a type of like the first Adam who started with the blessing of God and squandered it and what the fruit of squandering it looks like. And then God um, came and he spoke through the prophet Samuel and said, go find this person that I'm going to show you who will be the next king. And Samuel searched over the whole land, finally came to the house of Jesse. Jesse paraded all his sons forward and says, none of these people are that. I, do you not have any more sons? And Jesse said, well, there is that shepherd boy. So David calls, or Jesse calls David in. David comes in and Samuel says, yes, this is the next king. David was anointed king as a child in anonymity. He was trained in wisdom and the ways of God's heart as a shepherd boy, almost like a type of the second Adam, like Jesus, who would be a shepherd, a prophet, a priest, and a king all at the same time. David experienced a promotion of sorts by King Saul as a warrior, a musician, and a wise counselor after he slayed the Philistine giant and champion Goliath, right? But then David's fortune soured over Saul's jealousy and pride. Saul started to be jealous over David and all the praises and affirmation. He saw David as a threat. So then David was sidelined and he was eventually driven out of the very land he was anointed to be king of, right? Then he had to take, he had numerous opportunities to take vengeance on Saul by his own hand, but was restrained by God in ways that he didn't understand. His friends were killed. He became an outcast. He eventually escaped to a cave with a bunch of other outcasts whom he befriended and then encouraged and trained and they became mighty men of God. And then he makes a peace treaty with the Philistines, the very people who he had committed war, made war against as a child, who were the sworn enemies of the land he was supposed to be king of, thinking maybe this is the way God is going to bring his promise to fulfillment. And so he serves the Philistines, and the Philistines begin to make war and plan to make war against Saul and against the people of Israel. And David's thinking, this is how it's going to happen. This is finally how it's going to happen. I understand the plan of God, finally. 
So he brings his few, his few uh, on the eve before battle, his few counselors, like his vice presidents, you know, um, and uh, he, he, he comes into this council, and the king of the Philistines says, well, David, actually, the other governors and the other kings are not really comfortable with you coming to war with us because, you know, remember that, that time with Goliath, and, and, and you're, you're, you're still one of them. That's, and so David... After he's been driven, beaten down, made an outcast, like all this stuff, he thinks this is finally the way it's going to happen, and no. So he turns tail to go back into this, this place. He, he is now without a people and without a plan. And when he gets back to Ziklag, the city where his, his mighty men, his encampment is, he comes and he sees the pillars of smoke rising because the city has been burned down and his own wives, his wife, his children, and the children of the men who he brought with him are kidnapped and all their stuff is gone. Now you talk about a reason to complain. We're picking this up in 1 Samuel chapter 30, 1 through 6. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there, from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive." Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed. Say greatly distressed. I don't know about you, I have not been distressed to that point yet. For the people spoke of stoning him, his own people, the, his, the very people he trained up in that cave were now saying and thinking, they were speaking of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and his daughters. You know, trauma and grief can make you do some crazy things. It can. This is scary stuff. I mean, this, is, this was no joke here. Families kidnapped, gone, cities burned, and his own people are thinking, man, David must have a curse. They're talking of stoning him. What does it say? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What is the image of strengthening in the Lord your God? Well, that word literally means to fasten onto, to cling, like a child runs to a parent and grabs around the legs and draw strength from someone who's much stronger. David ran to his God and wrapped his arms, his heavenly father, and wrapped his arms around his legs to strengthen himself. 
Yes, I pulled that off Getty Images. It was the best image I could find. So you just credit to who that photographer is. His name is Todd Neiman. He didn't know it, but he was capturing David, strengthening himself in the Lord, his God. Yes, so at this watershed point, did David face the desert? Because he probably had every reason to, right? Or did he face the land of fruitfulness still? Even like, I mean, you're talking at the end of a person's rope. Well, what does that even look like? I mean, well, I'm glad you asked that. Because the history of David's, we don't just have a history of David's life, which is told in First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. We actually have many of the songs and the records of how David worshipped at these points. It's just they're in the book of Psalms, so we read them here, and then we read the history over here. But actually, there have been many theologians and Bible scholars that have matched some of the Psalms to some of the points that of, in David's history, so we can learn to see and to hear what worship that pursues God's own heart looks like and sounds like. So this is the setting. Psalm 25 is widely thought to have been written at this moment in time when David went to strengthen himself in the Lord at this watershed point. So I want you to close your eyes if you can and listen. Imagine yourself. Put yourself in David's shoes alone. Push to the very limit with no idea how the promise is going to come to pass. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord, God, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of this net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many. 
and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. I want my worship to sound like that at watershed points, not like the drivel of complaining that so often comes out of my mouth, not the criticism and the despondency that comes out of my mouth. I want my worship to sound like this. This is after God's own heart. David confesses some things. And this is the title of the, the message. There are three messes. Worship confesses. Worship uncovers. Worship costs. This is worship confess, confesses. Worship confesses some things. Worship that is in spirit and in truth. David confessed first his humility. He does not bring an agenda to God. He does not bring a list of things that he wants God to do. He puts himself as the student and God as the teacher, himself as the child, God as the father, himself as the servant, and God as the Lord. You know, when my wife and I, when we first took Financial Peace University by Dave Ramsey, I was sitting in there and I was excited to take the course because we were already tithing. We were already, God had prospered us in many ways, but we really wanted to get out of this month-to-month living. Like we were spending almost all the money that we had. And so we go through this class and one of the first things Dave says is, and now it's time to cut up all your credit cards. And immediately in my heart says, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing I, I will do whatever else you ask me. I'm not doing that. I, uh, it would be embarrassing for me not to have a credit card. I want to get stuff on Amazon when I want to get stuff on Amazon or at cost. Like, I, like, what if I need to buy an airline ticket? I don't want to have to call and try. Like, I mean, all these things fill in. I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. My wife was like, I'm going to let the Lord deal with you. Yes. So I come to worship, and immediately, like, when I lift my hands to worship, I can feel what I have withheld from the Lord. Was the Lord after my credit cards? No, he didn't care about them. I mean, maybe in wisdom, yes, but he cared about the me that I was withholding. And I was just, I had to, I had to repent. I had to confess my own humility. No, Lord, I'm the student, you're the teacher. I'm the child, you're the father. No, I am the servant, you are the Lord. And say, God, if you want me to cut up the credit cards, I will cut up the credit cards. If you want me to do whatever you want me to do, Lord, I withhold nothing. I come with no agenda other than to learn from your word, to hear from your heart, and to follow your way. Amen. That's humility, We, we don't always withhold nothing. There are, we withhold things from the Lord. We, you know, there was a, a time, I had a family we were helping to try to find a place to live. They couldn't find a place to live, couldn't find a place to live. And I'm thinking, 
they work, I mean, they have a job, it can't be an income, like, what is going on? Then I find out the reason they cannot find a place to live is that they will not give up their pets. Now, I am not on a war against pets. I love pets. We just had to put down our loving dog of 15 years. I am not, I am in no way, I am not on a war against pets. But pets can be just as much something you withhold from the Lord as anything else. And as soon as the Lord dealt with this person, amazing, that pet really could go to somebody else and be loved, and then the Lord blessed them with a place to live. I am not on a war against pets. Please do not hear that. I love pets. But we don't always give up our agendas when we come to the Lord. And in that, we're facing the desert, not the fruited plain. Worship confesses God's goodness. David, over and over, he says, your paths, your ways, your truth, your tender mercies, your loving kindness. What did David focus on? Why God wasn't doing something? No. He continued to confess the goodness of God, not out of... uh, like not out of obligation, but out of a pursuit of God's heart. He knew the Lord. He knew his tender mercies and his loving kindness, his goodness. That's what came out of David's mouth in this moment of worship. And the last thing is worship confesses our own sin. Somehow, We have been deceived in this area because sin, not just your sin, but sin in general, is the real source of embarrassment, guilt, and shame. It is the real source of affliction and pain. It is the real source of desolation. It is the author of that desert, not the fruited plain. Confessing sin does not lead to the desert of embarrassment. It leads to the land of fruitfulness, and it leads to freedom. Confessing sin is not something you do once when you get saved. Confessing sin is something that we do whenever it pops up. That's why, I mean, over and over, David David is following the Lord faithfully against all opposition, and he's saying, forgive my sin, forgive my iniquity, for it is great. Like, I mean, if we believe the narrative of the world that believes that talking about our faults or where we have fallen short, that it would lead only to hopelessness, depression, and self-hatred. It's like confessing sin has become dangerous to our well-being. It's not so. We even say things like, well, if such and such can happen to so-and-so and then we trail off. I've said that before. Well, if such and such can happen to so-and-so, well, you know what we're really saying when we say that? If something bad can happen to someone so good, then I don't understand God and my own faithfulness won't matter. What we are really saying is we doubt the goodness of God and we are tired of believing promises in a broken world and we are afraid we could be next. We are in fact saying that good people deserve an easy life. And this deceptively insulates us from confessing our own sin or making room for others to do so. 
It keeps us singing empty songs. And while it is judgmental and unholy to point out the sin of the suffering as a way of justifying their affliction, it is equally dangerous to avoid confessing our own sin before God when affliction strikes. Confessing sin restores us, removes our guilt and shame, reaffirms God's goodness. Confession sends us It changes our direction, again, towards the land of fruitfulness, and it sends us, allows the current of God's river to sweep us down into this land of fruitfulness, toward the land, no matter how far off it seems. But confession of our sin is worship that leads to breakthrough. We see that in David's life. Worship confesses humility. Worship confesses God's goodness, and worship confesses our own sin. All of us have fallen short. It is not a point of embarrassment to come to the altar and confess your sin before God. So how does this story end up? Continuing in 1 Samuel, it says, Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me which ephod is just the, the priestly clothes. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop, and shall I overtake them? And God answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. You know, some of us, because we have not confessed humility... We have not continued to confess God's goodness, and we have not confessed our own sin. We stay confused and cannot hear direction from the Lord. When we confess in worship, it restores us to a place where we can actually ask one question, not 50,000, thank you, Gail, one question, or in David's case, kind of two parts, A and B, one question, and we can hear direction from the Lord. So David took and pursued, and he got some help from an Egyptian that was camped out to actually be a spy for the Amalekites, but then recognized God's presence on David and said, yeah, I'll I'll take you to them. And so it says, and when he, the Egyptian, had brought him, David, down, there they were spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Say that with me. David recovered all. Worship team, can you come forward? We want to put this into practice. Worship, your worship and the way you worship and the way we worship as a church matters. We want to hear from the Lord. We want the manifest presence of God 
What we need to start with is confessing our own humility in worship, confessing God's goodness, and confessing our own sin. There is no embarrassment in that. It leads to freedom, and it's facing the land of fruitfulness. What do you need to recover this morning? What does your worship confession look like?